391 of the Survival Podcast. It is Thursday, March the 4th, 2010, and uh, again, this is episode 391 of the show. We're going to cross the 400 threshold this month, and that's going to be cool. Uh, So what are we going to talk about today? Well, last night I was on uh, American Freedom Radio from 7 p.m. Central to 9 p.m. Central uh, with Chrissy Zukowski on her show, Freedom Watch, uh, I'm sorry, not Freedom Watch, Truth Brigade. And um, I had a good time there, and we talked about something we've talked about here before, individual sovereignty and uh, the illusion of freedom. And I got really excited and really charged up, and I'm still charged up from last night, so I kind of want to stay in that vein um, before I go off to something else again. But I don't want to repeat what I did last night, or basically those were two topics I covered back in December. So what I'm going to talk about today is, is basically individual revolution. Uh, how you can live your life in active revolution on a daily basis, not just from government, but from systemic dependence. So I'm going to talk about that today. That's going to be the theme. But before we do that, let's knock out the housekeeping. Housekeeping item number one, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to make sure the show's here for you every day. Sponsor of the day number one, Solutions from Science and the Survival Seed Bank. What's a survival seed bank? It is a store of seeds for the future. It is not a store of seeds for you to plant this year. There are better sources of seeds for seeds like that. The Survival Seed Bank is designed to make sure that once you put one in place, you have seed available to plant for 20 years. It's been specially put away and stored to have that long shelf life. So check out the Survival Seed Bank. Uh, Major nations put away store of seed. Uh, You should probably do the same just in case. Um, solution, uh, sponsor of the day number one, uh, two today, Backyard Food Production, Marjorie down there in uh, South Texas. Absolutely amazing DVD I want you to check out. I really like the work that they're doing. Keep an eye on their site for workshops if you're in the Texas area. She has some pretty cool workshops. She's doing uh, a series right now. I wasn't able to make the February one, but it does look like I'm going to make the March one. Uh, so I'll be down there for the third part of that series, and that'll be cool. And uh, I'll tell you what, every time I watch that DVD, I learn more. If you're going to you know, build up a collection of uh, information so that you can produce your own food, uh, this is a DVD that belongs in that collection. Uh, I absolutely believe that, or I wouldn't say it. All right, moving on from there. Next up is, uh, you know, I want you guys to connect with us. I want you to reach out, get involved with us by all the ways that uh, we have available to you. With social media is what I'm talking about here. So one, join our forum, get involved, be part of the community. Two, uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Haven't been any new videos for a while. We'll be getting some up there really soon, though, especially uh, we're about to go away. When we go away, we generally shoot some video. Uh, and uh, last but not least, connect with me on Facebook, man. Uh, I've got my own fan page over there for Survival Podcast, and you can be my friend on Facebook as well. I, I'll warn you that I don't use Facebook a lot, but I'm there, and I do have show updates that go there. 
I'm also on Twitter, so you can connect with me on Twitter. I'm the Survival Pod C, the Survival Pod C on Twitter. All right, with that, I think we've done enough. Let's get into the main topic of today's show, which again is individual revolution, living a life of active revolution. And what do I mean by that? Am I talking about going out and, uh, you know, constantly fighting the battle uh, in an active capacity where you're, you're kind of sticking out in society? Absolutely not. Am I, in fact, I would be a very poor revolutionary. A revolutionary, uh, especially early in the battle, when you're highly outnumbered, has to be a guerrilla warrior, right? You can't be out there in the open taking fire because you don't have enough capacity to do that, so you have to use intelligence uh, and cutting and skill and strategy to fight the war at that stage, okay? So it's not that kind of war, but it is that kind of philosophy that I want to get across to you today. Now, the other side of that, does that mean that you run out into the hills and hide out into the middle of nowhere, somewhere out in the middle of uh, nowhere, Idaho, or nowhere, South Dakota? Now, look, if you li- don't take this wrong, because if you live there right now because you like it there, that's fine. What I'm saying is you don't go to a place like that if that's not what you want. That's, that's not active revolution either. And the problem with that, people think that, well, I'm just going to get away from society and then I'm in active revolution. Again, if you like it there, that's different. But if you don't like it there, you're letting society push you into something you don't want. You might as well be working a job you don't like. You'd probably be more comfortable. See, and that's, that's, what, that's the problem that people have when they decide to rebel against systems. That they allow those, that, that rebellion to become their new slave master. Instead of the system driving them, the rebellion drives them. The only way you can be a good rebel, the only way you can be a good, uh, uh, I guess rebel, I guess is the best term for it, a revolutionary is the way I'm looking for it, is to manage the rebellion, to manage the revolution, rather than have the revolution or rebellion manage you. And there's a lot of things that we always talk about doing here that are part of that rebellion process, that revolution process. But... The big thing is your neighbor might do some of them too, and they have nothing to do with rebellion or revolution. It's about the mentality. And why is the mentality important? Well, I will share one thing that I talked about last night with, uh, with Christy and her audience, and that was uh, a book that I read in the past, a long, long time ago, back when I was in you know, sales management and sales training, and I met this guy, and we were talking about managing our sales forces and how hard that can be sometimes and traveling and uh, how things just get overwhelming. One of the you know, conversations you have on an airplane with somebody. And he said, Jack, you really need to read this book. Uh, it's called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And it was kind of a new book back then. I had never even heard of it yet. And I said, okay. So the next time I'm at the bookstore, I was like Barnes & Noble, and I walked up and I, uh, you know, to the, to, the, to the shelves and I looked through it and I found the book and there it was looking at me. Pulled it out and just opened it up randomly somewhere to the center. And I ended up on a page in that book where there were two big circles. And one circle said circle of influence. And the other one, which was a much larger circle, said the circle of concern. And there was just a little bit of text on the opposite page, and basically it told me what that image was, even though I already had a pretty good idea. And what it said is that circle of concern is everything that you care about, right? So that's things like the stuff that goes on in your house is inside that circle. Now, the circle of concern is around the circle of influence. So you've got a little circle in the center and a big circle around everything. So everything in the little circle is also in the big circle, if that makes sense. But it's you know, the circle of concern is things like those damn Democrats, what are they doing, right? Or those damn Republicans? 
or what the price of tea in China is, or some news story that you heard about that's affecting people halfway across the world uh, that you really don't directly influence, or what your neighbor's doing that you don't have any ability to control, not that you probably should be controlling what your neighbor's doing. But it's everything that you think about, that you see, that you hear, that comes into your life that concerns you, circle of concern. The smaller circle is your circle of influence. These are also things that concern you, but they're things that you have direct influence over. The temperature of the water in your pool, for instance. How well your garden's growing. What type of car you drive. How much you enjoy your workplace. How much you enjoy your job. Whether or not you've made the right career choice. Um, the meeting that you're going to have to make tomorrow. Your wife's anniversary that is coming up. It should be... Uh, should be something that you take seriously and do something nice for. Uh, any of those things like that. I guess it's not your wife's anniversary. It's your anniversary with your wife, gentlemen. I don't say it to the ladies because y'all never forget dates like that. Anyway, uh, but that's the circle of influence. And what this book was saying is that effective people spend all of their time on the circle of influence and very little time on the circle of concern. They'll look up once in a while for information, but when it comes to activity, they spend it on the things that they directly influence. So you would think that after seeing that, I would have bought this book. I folded the book back together and stuck it back on the shelf, decided to save my 15 bucks, because I realized that's exactly why that guy told me I needed to read that book, that everything I really needed to know out of that book was on that one page, which made it an amazing book. And if you want to buy it, go ahead. It's probably in half-price books now, and you can save some money. Uh, but... That, even though it was a very brief experience, probably because of the way that it happened and because of how simply profound it was. And the most profound things are amazingly simple, stuck with me for the rest of my life. Well, that's the angle that I'm coming at this with to you today. How to think about your active revolution in a way where you focus on the things that you have direct influence over. Let's be honest. The people that are running for office... When you occasionally talk to somebody about politics, your entire circle of influence is around, hey, I think you should look at this candidate because, and you're done. And you're done, unless they ask you questions. Because the harder you push people, the less likely they are to take on a new message. Or if they say to you, well, I heard this, you say, well, let me tell you the truth, and here it is, and now go research that. That's how you have to handle things like that. So it's not really a big active part of your life to get involved with politics, unless you're a politician. Unless you're running for office or a campaign manager, in general, politics are outside of your circle of influence. They're just part of your circle of concern. Does that mean they're not important? No. Does that mean we completely ignore them? No. But it means we don't focus on it. That's why maybe 10% of my shows even look at things like that. And the balance of my shows talk about active solutions. So if you're going to be a revolutionary, it's not as a politician today. Doesn't mean you don't pick the phone up and call your congressional clown a couple times a month. I call my Congress clown and I call both of my Senate clowns every month at least two or three times. They're on speed dial on my cell phone. Um, that I look at it as my civic duty. But how long does that take? You know, total ten minutes a month to make all those phone calls. Where am I spending the other, uh, you know, twenty nine days, uh, twenty four hours, fifty nine minutes, or you know, fifty eight, uh, forty, what would it be, fifty minutes? I'm spending it on active things that actually matter. But, okay, well, what makes something a revolutionary act? The minute that you turn away from the societal expected norm for a positive reason, you're in an act of rebellion and revolution. And what do I mean by that? 
Okay, so if the societal norm is wearing clothing and you go out and walk around naked in violation of law and good taste and they arrest you, that's not revolution. Well, it could be, I guess, but it's not effective revolution. It's not within your you know, circle of influence for the positive good. So just because it's counter to what society says doesn't make it a revolutionary act. But if it's counter to the expected norm but improves your position in life, and positively impacts those around you, now you're on the track to true revolution. So what would be an example of that? Well, an example of that would be growing your own food, but not just because you want to garden, because you actively want to feed yourself and take control of the food that goes into your body and the food that goes into the body of some of your neighbors because you're sharing your plantings. It's all about the motivation. When my grandparents were growing a garden, it wasn't an act of rebellion. It was... It was the norm of the time. It was a positive normal of the time. And that's something else we're going to talk about today, positive normals. There's a lot of normals of society that are highly positive, but there's some very, very negative ones. Becoming totally disconnected with the process that allows you to feed yourself every single day of your life is not a healthy societal norm, but it's become a societal norm. So taking on that role, is an act of rebellion, an act of revolution. To me, it's the greatest act of revolution. When you look at all the things that we are dependent upon society for, the two really big ones are food and water, which I'm going to put together, because they're consumables, and shelter. And shelter is something that if we are you know, reasonable with what we can afford financially, we can generally within 10 years' time, provide ourselves a shelter that doesn't require constant input of cash. Some small token to the government masters that we can't yet break free from in the form of property taxes, but we can pay off houses in 10 years if we buy houses within our means. If you can't pay off a house in 10 years, it's not within your means. I'm sorry, I don't care what the government's guidelines are for mortgages. Um, That didn't work out real well now, did it? That's all I'll say about that today. But, so we can take care of the shelter thing, but the food thing is the one that keeps people working. It really is. If you had a constant supply of free food, um, your work requirements would drop drastically. There's an old saying, if we didn't have to eat, we'd all be rich. And there's a, there's a huge piece of that that's true. So, my belief is if you can feed yourself, you've gotten so close to independence already that it makes sense for you to start there, but it sure as hell isn't where you stop. The next thing that we end up highly dependent upon today is we like our gadgets. I'm sitting here, I've got a nice computer that I'm talking into right now, just to my right is my laptop, it's plugged into a a, a docking station, and it's got a second monitor, okay? I mean, I've got plants sprouting right now underneath row lights so I can feed myself. You know, what do these things have in common? They require electricity. And they require the computers to be functional, honestly, require the Internet. You notice when computers first came out, they said, there'll be a computer in every home in the 80s. And there really wasn't. And for years and years, there were computers, but they weren't in every home. You know why? There was no Internet. No one figured a reason they needed a computer. Because they said, well, you, you can, like, keep your records on there. I'd be like, yeah, whatever. You can write on there. Well, I don't like to write. When I do, I'll use a typewriter. You know? And I guess if you did a lot of Word Word document processing that you would, you know, like a computer because you could edit a lot easier than a typewriter and, you know, make, replicate pieces of a document easier with, you know, copy and paste and other features like that. But the reality is that 
It's 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 simply the case that back then no one really wanted a computer, except for like the super techno geeks and people like me that knew there already was an internet before Al Gore invented it. Because we had our little Commodore 128Ds, and we had our, our little uh, 14-4 modems that you stuck the phone into after you dialed it. And uh, we had these little connections and these little chat boards. That would have been about 1985. But other than that, other than people like me, no one really wanted a computer back then. They certainly weren't going to be in every home without the Internet. So what does that mean? It means that technology and energy are a requirement to live the way we want to live today. So... For most people, not all, but for most people, to take such a step backwards that they're going to go live a lifestyle like the Amish with no electricity whatsoever, that would not be an act of effective rebellion. Because no one cares, because no one wants to do it too. See, a good rebel, right, a good revolutionary, takes an action that when those around him look at it, they go, I want to do that too. That's cool. That's better than what I have. They create the grass is greener effect. Now, if your act of revolution is to move to an old farmhouse and live with a dirt floor and, and no electricity like it's 1800, there's this very small group of people that like that idea, but since it's so simple and affordable to do, they're probably already doing it, so no one goes, hey, I'm going to go do that too. But if you go into a farm like that, put up a great big solar array, and turn it into a modern home, all of a sudden people want to be like you. Now, it's very important that you understand that the last statement is not about ego, it's not about pride, it's about a natural result of doing what's best for you the way that you see fit for yourself. You don't have to, as a revolutionary with this, this mentality, think about anything about how many people follow you or if they ever do follow you or how they follow you or what they do and what they do and how they react to what you're doing is outside of your circle of influence. All you really control is your own life. And as an example, you have a natural result that people want to follow you. It's a much better way to be a revolutionary than running around knocking on doors and trying to gather your forces together. To go out and focus on the things that you directly control. Because if you can get yourself into a situation where you have a big, beautiful little food forest in the background and bushes and food and solar and, and, and wind and everything else you can do to make yourself as independent as possible, and you're sitting in your little place that you've created for yourself, and I don't know where it is. I don't know if it's downtown San Francisco or it's a remote mountaintop in Idaho or it's somewhere in between like I have in Arkansas. It's whatever you want or it's not effective. It's whatever you want or the situation's driving you versus you controlling the situation. And it's not revolution. But wherever that is, those around you that can see it, look at it and go, well, hell, if he can do that or she can do that, then I can do that too. And it's back to the old thing that's become a cliche, but it's so true. If you want to change your nation, you've got to change yourself first. And you don't even change yourself so that your nation will change. You change yourself so that yourself will change. Because you become disgusted with the way that you're living. See, that's the problem that most patriots and revolutionaries have today. Is they're so disgusted with the way society is. They're so disgusted with the way other people are living. And they want to change that. Well, that's a very difficult thing to do. Because people naturally resist change, 
They'll even fight. They'll get violence if you try to force change upon them. Most people don't want change. Even though hope and change won the election, they didn't really want change. You know what people really wanted when they heard change from Obama, the people that bought into it? And I, I, I question the intelligence of anybody that did. I'm sorry. I do. But if you bought into that, what you really were saying is I want to change backwards. That America wasn't supposed to turn out this way. And we don't want to change it forward by doing more of the crap that's messed it up. We'd like it to go back to where the average guy had a shot. We'd like it to go back to where people weren't totally sacked with taxation. And what most people don't realize is it was actually a lot worse in a time that they think of was better because they're young now and they, they just don't know. They think, you know, if we get back down to that a Kennedy era, really? When capital gains taxes were like 90%? That was great, right? But the media paints this nostalgic picture. So people are confused about where they want to go. It's obvious that when you're confused about where you want to go, don't know where you were, aren't sure of where you are, you're not going to ever get to a place that makes you happy. So people keep wandering around aimlessly. Part of being a good revolutionary today is to learn the facts about where are we, how do we get here, where are we headed, and what part of these things am I happy about, and what part of these things am I dissatisfied with. Because the other thing that we have to make sure we take away from today is society is not bad. If we say society is bad, society is evil. It's like saying that a gun is bad or a gun is evil. There's evil things that are done with a gun. But one man has a gun to feed himself. Another man has a gun to defend his home. Another man as a soldier has a gun to defend his nation. And a fourth man has a gun to rob a liquor store. The guns in all of these equations are inert. The actions taken with them are what determines whether those actions are noble or evil. Society works the same way. If we say society is bad, then we have nothing left. All society is is a collective of human beings. So if we're going to have human beings cohabitating, we're going to have society. But what's happened is the powers that be have manipulated society into a collective belief that they, are, they, they need someone to lead and control and manage their lives, and that we need a social safety net. And they've used all types of things within that, such as class warfare. Oh, the poor people want your money, rich people. Oh, middle class, the rich people have the money that you should have, and the poor people want what you have, and they don't want to work. They pit the black man against the white man, the Hispanic man against the black man, the religious against the non-religious, the Christian against the Muslim. Right? They manipulate the major divisions of our society. The major ways that people identify themselves, as soon as that identity becomes a norm, it becomes a piece in their little puzzle to manage. So you have to step outside of that. You can't be a revolutionary today if you hate a man for his religion, the color of his skin, or his spiritual beliefs. Including, you can't dislike a man because his spiritual belief is, I don't believe in anything. If you want to be a revolutionary today, you want your freedom, then you have to give it to those around you. And that's what scares the hell out of most people. It's what makes them angry, and it makes them close off the little closed-knit groups. They call themselves patriots or warriors or whatever, and they get up and they scream and they yell and they holler, but they really don't affect any change at all. Because they can't. 
Because they're saying, I want my freedom, but I don't want everybody else to have the same freedoms that I have. Because the freedom of the other scares them. It's like the person that says, well, I should be able to carry a gun. I don't know about this guy over here. He looks a little bit shifty. Well, has he ever robbed anybody, shot anybody, murdered anybody, beat anybody up? Is he mentally defective? No, I just don't, something about him. I, I don't feel good about him having a gun. Well, then you don't get one either. Well, it works the same with beliefs. If you want to be able to have your belief, then other people need to have their beliefs, even when we differ with them. That doesn't mean if you differ with my belief system, and it's based on fact, if we're talking about something like a clown on the, on the forum the other day trying to tell me why we need genetically modified foods, I might tell you you're an ass clown. Doesn't mean I interfere with your right to believe that stuff. I just think you're foolish. But I'm not going to spend my time focusing on that. I'm going to spend my time focusing on what I believe the solution is, which is everybody doing a little bit to provide a little bit of their own. What are other things that you can do to rebel? To be a rebel. Pay off your debt. Doesn't sound very rebellious. Sounds boring. Sounds hard. Sounds tedious. But it's a huge act of rebellion. Let me explain something to you that that fundamentally people don't understand. All money is loaned into existence. And when you take a loan, you're helping the system create money out of thin air. Let's use a credit card, for example. You get a credit card thing in the mail, and it comes from American Express or Visa or MasterCard or Capital One. I don't give a crap which scumbag, dirtbag, piece of crap company it comes from. You're you're still like I was 15 years ago. Oh, look, they give me money. You sign it, you send it in. They send you a shiny credit card back. It comes with a $10,000 limit. In your mind, you believe that somewhere somebody has $10,000, Okay. I mean, you would have to believe there is $10,000 somewhere so that it can be loaned to you and spent into the economy. The day you get, the day before you got that credit card, there was no money. That $10,000 did not exist. When you sign the application and send it in and they issue you the credit card, the money is created out of thin air because the banks operating in a fractional reserve system can loan more than they have. And they leverage these things 10 to 1 or greater. But they can't create the money unless someone borrows it. So we put it another way. If the bank only had $10,000, okay, and it just sat there, they can't loan, they can't do anything with it. They can't turn it into $19,000 by loaning 90% of its value. Okay? But if you come in and they issue you a credit card with a $9,000 limit, effectively now they have $19,000. I know this doesn't make sense because it's just ridiculous, but it's the way it works. They effectively now have $19,000. The loan to you for nine is on their books as an asset, is money due, and the $10,000 still there. Now they have $19,000, and they loan against that. And they do it again and again and again. And as that money gets spent, it gets put back into the banking system, and it gets leveraged again. And it gets loaned against again. And when it gets loaned against again, it creates more money that are put down as assets. And those are loaned against. And it goes on and on and on and on. 
So when you say, I don't approve of the Federal Reserve, I don't like the way that our money supply is continuously inflated, I don't like the deflation of the value of our dollar, I don't like any of this, but yet you're constantly taking out loans, you're helping create fake money. Now, if you are a rebel, if you are a revolutionary, if you want to prevent something from happening, you don't take an active role in it. In other words, if you seriously believe that gasoline was evil, you probably wouldn't drive a gasoline car. If you did, people would call you a hypocrite. And probably, maybe, rightly so, because you might also say, well, I don't want gasoline cars, but i got to get to work every day, and, you know, I don't really have another way to do that. Right, so, But you probably wouldn't drive a Hummer. You'd go get something like I got, Jetta, 40 miles to the gallon, or a hybrid. Right, and then you would be consistent with your beliefs. Well, if you're sitting here telling me that you don't believe that we should be creating money out of, and ask yourself, because I want to tell you what to believe. Do you believe we should create money out of thin air? Do you believe that we should continuously inflate the money supply of the United States? Do you believe that our money should be totally disconnected from any commodity that keeps its growth in check? Do you think our nation should be creating money without a store of value behind it? If you've answered no to all those questions, then every other reason I've given you in the past for not owning a credit card doesn't even matter. You should not own a credit card because it's directly uh, opposite of your belief system. It would be like being a, a Bible-believing Christian that goes to church every Sunday and then going out every Wednesday, knocking on people's door and telling them there is no God. And I know you're going, that's a stretch. No, it's not. If, if you, now, again, if you believe that fractional reserve is okay, then there's no problem here. But if you think that this, this money creation scheme, this Ponzi scheme that is our economy is wrong, and you're using credit cards, you're helping the system along in more ways than you can imagine. Because that little account of yours has been packaged, repackaged, packaged, repackaged, insured, shorted, longed, six ways from Sunday, over and over and over again. And the $10,000 worth of credit card you're, you're carrying debt, you know how much money it's probably created? It's probably created 100000 fake dollars in our economy. So your $10,000 of debt will eventually cost you $100,000. And that's why. Because sooner or later, somebody has to pay for it. That's why you can't be a revolutionary today with a credit card in your pocket. Bank card with a Visa logo, I'm okay with that. It's your money. You've earned it. You're spending it that way. That's fine. Does it empower the system? Sort of, but not in the same way. Because it is money. It doesn't create money. Those are two totally different things. What else can you do as a revolutionary today to really make an impact on your own life? Well, the next thing I suggest that you do is build things. Learn how to build things. What kind of things? I don't know. How much building do you want to do? Learn how to build simple things like a shed to increase your property value without having to partake in the normal system. I want you to look at it this way. I'm looking at building some sheds up in Arkansas, some outbuildings, and I've looked at some of them at the storefront at Home Depot where they have a nice little price there and says, you can own this shed for $12 a month with our Home Depot credit card. It's a $4,800 shed, $4,800 at $12 a month. Let's do some simple math right now, folks. That's ridiculous because that's, well, it's 400 months if there was zero interest. 400 months. All right. So I can pay a credit card for 
400 months, and we know it's going to be longer than that. It's going to be forever. It's you know getting beyond what a human being can be expected to uh, to live at some point. We're going to get to with, when we start looking at numbers like 400 months, and then we add interest to it. So we know it's not really going to be 12 dollars. That that must be some kind of nonsensical first year that they're kind of hiding. And when you apply for the credit card, they'll reveal to you that it's more. And it, God, it needs to be more because if it really is 12, they should be arrested for that. But let's say you had the cash, and it's $4,800. You could just spend the money. Well, I priced the materials to build that shed myself. And pricing all the materials, all the upgrades, I can build that shed for about $900 in materials. That means that almost $4,000, what is it, $3,900 is labor and delivery of the materials. Well, if I don't spend that money, I can still have that shed if I learn how to build I can still have the shed, and I still have my $3,900 to do other things to improve the value of my property or add to my skill set with training. I mean, but is building really an act of revolution just because it saves money? Well, I think it is, but let's look at it in a longer historical context. Think of the stories of the greatest revolutionaries in history. They were all builders. Noah built an ark. Jesus was a carpenter. You can go through... Countless figures from history that were considered revolutionaries that were also builders. Building is an act of revolution because it provides shelter. It provides function that doesn't rely on somebody else to provide it for you. So it separates you from need. If you want to see some a group of people that generally become very wealthy are people that build houses professionally as, as, a, as a profession. Even the guy that's just the hammer swinger. Generally, these guys, you know, at least in, in yesterday's uh, time, became quite wealthy. Why? Was it because they made so much money with what they were doing? Well, if they were the big guy at the top, yeah. But if they were just the guy that did the work, had a job, made a decent blue-collar living, <clears throat> here's how they would get wealthy. Well, they would go out to the job sites, and they would work every day. And they would learn one or two parts of building a house very well. They would become a master at that. And, but they would be out with people building houses every day, and they would talk to the people around them, and they would learn how to do things. Like the guy that's a framer would learn how to do drywall sooner or later. He'd learn how to do roofing. He'd learn how to do wiring. He'd learn how to do a slab foundation. He would learn all of these things. And because he knew how to do them, over time he would take that little first house that he built or bought, and he would build it up would sell it off. He would make a huge profit on it because he had no labor cost in it, and he maybe would do that two or three more times, and by the time he retired, he'd have a big, beautiful house that his salary would have never been able to provide for him, but by building, he basically, even though he started with this little shack, he turned that shack into that great big house. And he might have done it in a way in which, by the time they moved into it, it was already paid for That's the power of building. That's why it's a revolutionary act. And if you learn to build, you learn to build so many more things than improving your home or building an an outbuilding. We're talking about building trellises and building decks, building extensions onto your home, building a greenhouse, building an aquaponics system. All of these things create liberty. Remember, every time you take one step toward liberty away from the system, you're rebelling in a positive way inside of your circle of influence versus yelling and screaming and being angry over things that are in your circle of concern but you have no direct influence over. 
I'm suggesting today that you consider taking a mental shift in the way that you approach problems in your life and focus on the solution for yourself as an individual. So, so far, we know the main things I've talked about are building, providing your own energy, and growing your own food, providing your own water. Do you know what they lead to if you... um, if you think about them a little bit every day, if you work on them a little bit every day, if you understand that you're on a sliding scale, and what the sliding scale is is that you're getting more and more of something every single day of your life. Most Americans were getting a little tiny bit fatter every day. We're getting a little tiny bit more toxin, uh, more toxins in our body every day from the food that we eat. We're getting a little tiny bit more deeper into debt. We're getting a little tiny bit more uh, dependent upon the system. We're getting a little bit more dumbed down to reality, just a tiny bit. So insignificant of a little amount that we don't even notice. So insignificant of a little amount that over two months for most people, it's meaningless to the entire scope of their life. But we do it every day for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And you know what happens? We end up 60, 70, 75 years old, trying to calculate how long we're going to live so we know when we can retire. Basically, we get to a point where we say, yeah, I probably will be dead in 10 years. I got 10 years worth of money. I can quit now. Does that sound like the dream of retirement that we've all been sold? It's not what they sell us, but it's what they deliver to us. You do these things right, what it leads to is early retirement. It really does. Before I tell you how that works, though, I want to tell you exactly what I just said and how, how it works out. How we've been sold one dream of retirement, but completely led formulaically to another. Right now, the way that financial advice works for the serfs of the world, the hardworking serfs, which are today's middle class, the guy with a job that goes to work every day, pays his bills, patriotically pays his taxes, according to Joe Biden, you know, holds that job down for 40, 50 years, maybe more. Well, he sits and he talks to a financial advisor someday, either a guy he met on his own or one they bring into work or whatever, about 401Ks and all this good stuff. And basically, here's what the guy says. He says, you know, put away 10 15% of your money, whatever they can figure out that the guy can do. He said, now, here's how your retirement works. What we need to do is figure out what your life expectancy is, figure out what your expected retirement age is, and then what your budget will be at that point, how much it's going to cost you to live, and then we need to make sure that there's more money than that time allocates for, with it kind of basing it on a rate of inflation. Where else would you get at the end of that type of a plan? But to a point where you look at an eventual date and say, I'll probably be dead before the money runs out. Where else could you be led to with that type of planning? Tell me that isn't what every financial planner, other than the really good ones that work only for wealthy people, all the ones that work with normal, average, everyday, blue-collar, and low-end, white-collar people, tell me that's not exactly what they do. Do you know why they do that? It's how the system's set up. It's not even their fault. Most of them don't even realize that that's what they're doing. Certainly the people they're doing it to don't know that's what they're doing. It's the only place you could possibly be led to under our current situation. Why do you think they created inflation in the first place? Without inflation, people stop working a lot younger. They don't have to work as long. Think about it. If you would have saved 10% of your money because you weren't burdened by excessive taxes and debt from, from the point you started working till now, and there was a zero inflation rate, most people that are 50 would be done. A lot of people, if they work really hard, could be done by 40. 
in that society. Now, what do I mean by done? Do I mean going away and, you know, doing nothing? No, I mean choosing whichever way they wish to contribute to society and whichever way they don't want to contribute to society and living their life on their own terms as a free, liberated human being. That's what real retirement's all about. So exactly how does being a rebel lead to an early retirement, a retirement at 40 or 50? Well, it's all about why do you work in the first place? I want you to ask yourself a question right now. If you go to work and you don't really like it there, why would you do something you don't like? And I would tell you there's probably about 30 to 40% of Americans who would say, I hate my job. Of that 30 to 40%, about half of them really mean it. So that's 15 to 20% of Americans. The other 15 to 20%, they mean they, they don't mean they really hate their job. They hate the things that their job does to them. In other words, they hate the fact that they have to leave their house. They hate the fact that they have to get in the car and drive to work. They hate the fact that there's a, that one asshole at work that makes their life miserable. But overall, they actually don't really hate their job. But about 20% of Americans legitimately absolutely hate their jobs. And I'll tell you what, it's probably higher right now because of people that are unemployed and underemployed that go out and take jobs they would never take under normal circumstances just because they have to put food on the table and a roof over their head. So it's probably higher. Why would 25% of people do something they absolutely despise doing? Why would 1%? Why would anybody do anything they hate doing if no one's standing there with a gun pointed directly at their head and saying, do it? You know, if I told you, go outside, run as fast as you can, and face plant yourself into the brick wall on the side of your house, get up and do it again. Do it five times every day for the rest of your life so your face stays bloody and in pain. And, and you said, okay, well, what's my incentive? And I said, nothing. I just told you to do it. You'd look at me like I was crazy. You'd give me the middle finger. You'd walk off and go on about your life, and you wouldn't do it to yourself. Now, if I stood out there with a gun and said, your choice is to smash your face in the wall, or I shoot you in the stomach you'd probably smash your face into the wall and look for an opportunity to escape. But you would only do something that harmful to yourself, that's something that you disliked that much at gunpoint. But you go to a job that you hate every day? <clears throat> Why? Why? And I want you to go deeper than because I have to work. That's, that's a cop-out. What are the reasons? Why do you have to work? Well, I have to pay bills. What kind of bills? Well, you probably have debt, car payment. Why do you have a car? So I can get to work. Okay, and also for getting around and doing other things. How often do you buy a new car? Most Americans buy a new car every two to three years. Why? Because they have a lot of miles on it. Why do they have a lot of miles on it? Because they spend most of it going to work and back. Retired people drive the same car for 15 years. It looks brand new. Why? Because old people take care of their cars? No. Because they drive 10% of what we drive. Because they're not going to work every day, back and forth. Running 50 miles to 100 miles a day on a vehicle, like most Americans do. So you work so you can have a car so you can drive to work. Why else do you work? i got to put food on the table. Great. I understand that. Why else do you work? So I can have a house. Okay, you have to have a place to live. Why else do you work? So I pay the electric bill to the house. I see. Why else do you work? Well, got a credit card. Okay, got to pay that. Okay, because, you know, you should have done it, but okay, we got to pay that. But you pay that off eventually, right? Yeah, okay. Well, why else do you work? Very few people at the end of that conversation would be because I actually like to go. I like to go, there's no problem there. But if it doesn't end with that, we've kind of exhausted. Why do we work? We work so that we can have the things that we need. In other words, if I walked into your life with a magic wand like a magician, 
and went, poof, what kind of house do you want? And you said, you gave me exactly what you wanted. And I went, poof, and it was there. And you said, well, what do I have to do for it? I said, it's yours. And you go, okay, well, I still got to pay taxes on it. And I went, poof, your taxes are $500 a year. You live in the country now, even if you feel like you're in the city. So that's 500 bucks. You can make that in one week delivering pizzas. You're free for another 51 weeks of your life. And I said, okay, and what do you like to eat? And I went, poof, and there was a garden, and poof, and there were livestock. And everything you could possibly want was provided for you. And he said, well, I still like to go out to eat. And I said, well, you figure that out on your own. So what else do you want? You want a pool? Poof, there's your pool. Well, I need electricity in my house. Poof, and there was a solar array on the, on the roof of your home. Uh, is this realistic? No. Not at this speed. I want to make a point. I want you to understand it. It is going somewhere. And everything that you needed, that we just decided you worked for, I just made magically appear. And then I said, you know what? Here's what else I'm going to do. Poof, there's $100,000 in your bank. Cash. Do what you want with it. But you go to work tomorrow. Notice, I didn't say you won the lottery and got $50 million. I've just given you a lifestyle that supports you and $100,000 in cash. That's it. Would you go to work tomorrow? Probably not. You might. If you have, like, a sense of duty, you might go in and go, uh, I'm resigning. Right? Do two weeks' notice and train your replacement or whatever. But would you go to work a month from then? Almost nobody would. And if you would, then you really love your job and keep working until you don't love it anymore. But what I'm talking about, prepping as a lifestyle, leads to you building that condition for yourself. And it doesn't take that long. Even if it takes 20 years to get there, that seems like a long time. Those 20 years, you're going to spend that life anyway. You're going to be 20 years older someday unless you die. Then your problems are over anyway. But if you're 30, that means 20 years spent this way leads to a a 50-year-old retirement. Now, does that mean that you dry up and blow away? No. But it means you spend time doing the things that you actually love, the things that you actually care about. Spending time with your wife. See, this is what I don't want for the average American, but it's what most Americans are going to get. Most Americans are going to get the image that American Express Financial Advisors presents to you on the TV set during their commercials. You see this old man and this old woman, but they don't look old. You can tell that they're like in their late 60s. They could even be 70, but the next 70 is the new 50-70. You know, they look like they go down to Mexico once a month and get human growth hormone injections so that they can stay that way. They're vibrant. They're healthy. Their skin is taut. They're lightly tanned. Now, they're old, so they're not in bikinis and swim shorts. You know, the ladies wearing capri pants, and the guy's got his pants rolled up a little bit. They're walking hand in hand. The sun is setting on the beach, and they're happy. And they're retired, and they get to live the rest of their life that way, carrying their shoes down the beach while the sun sets. That happens for less than 1% of Americans, but they sell the system to you with it. This is your dream. Be good. Pay your taxes. Follow the rules. Put away 10 to 15% of your money. This will be you someday. And when you're 70, you might be in a wheelchair. You might be in a wheelchair at 50 because you might get uh, multiple sclerosis or hit by a car. You can't wait that long and hope it works out. You have to accelerate things if you want to be a revolutionary. So what would I be doing at 50? Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to be doing at 40. I'll be doing the show every day because I like it, because I want to help you, and I want to help you take care of yourself. But two years from now, 
I'll have my place set up exactly the way I've described to you over and over and over again because I made it my priority. Made it my priority. And the show is because I've decided to share it with people. That's my revolutionary role. That's how I'm a rebel. That's why I'm dangerous. I may be one of the most dangerous people in America today. But I'm not a terrorist, for God's sakes. I don't want to hurt anybody. But I'm dangerous to the system. Because I'm willing to demonstrate that there is another way. That we do not have to comply with the situational norms that they've created for us and said we have to line up behind. And I want to be clear on something. When I say I'm a dangerous man to the system, I'm a dangerous man to society, uh, that doesn't mean that I'm special. It doesn't mean that I'm bragging. It just means that revolutionaries are dangerous. They're dangerous because they change the way the status quo works. They influence it in ways beyond the control of the people that seek to have complete total control of establishment. And my point is, you can be as dangerous or more dangerous than me. And I've seen some of you people. I've seen some of what you're doing. Some of you are a lot more dangerous than me. Maybe a lot of people listen to me, but I've seen the actions some of you guys are taking. You're a lot further along your journey to complete independence than I am. You're even more dangerous than Jack Spierko will ever be. Because you did it without a radio show. You just did it to do it to prove you could. Because it's what you wanted. Well, my hope is that one day there will be a couple million of us that are this dangerous, living completely peacefully, side by side with all our other fellow American citizens, you know, checking out of the system, 80% out of the system by 40, 90% out of the system by 50, no longer contributing to the system in the gerber, gerbil hamster wheel way, but contributing to the system in meaningful, positive ways that we choose to contribute. That might be working with your church. That might be working with a charity. That might be working with Habitat for Humanity. I don't know. I'm not going to tell you what to do with your time. You've had society doing that your whole life. I'm going to tell you to get your freedom and then do whatever the hell you want with your time. And I'm going to tell you that everything in our society that tells you you can't was put there either by circumstance or intention to keep society running the way that it is so that a very few people could benefit at the absolute top level. It might be hard to believe, but if you really look at it rationally, you'll see no other explanation as to why things are the way that they are. Think about what I gave to you today about how our retirement system works today. We have people that by the time they retire, most of them, even if they have a little bit of money put away, they really can't live their lives anymore. You know what retirement used to be back in, Back in the days when things were still somewhat tribal in nature, elders never really retired. They just changed the way that they contributed to society. As they would get older, they would hunt less to spend more time, you know, maybe doing a little bit of work in the fields closer to, to, to the establishment. As they would get even older, they would spend more time educating, teaching the next generation, watching the children. And the older they got, the wiser they were, they were considered, and the more that they were respected, and the more that they were treasured by the people around them. And they were never thrown out to dry, and they were never put in a home somewhere across town. They were the absolute hierarchy of the society that they lived in, and respected for the wisdom that they carried, 
Because a man that was 70 years old or a woman that was 70 years old had 70 years of wisdom inside that mind, even if it was starting to fail. And the wisdom that was there was considered a treasure and a value to the tribe. And we call ourselves civilized because we put grandma on a respirator and extended her life by 18 months. In a world full of antiseptic and overworked nurses who don't take real good care of her, not because they didn't care, but because they're overworked and they have 20 people they're trying to take care of. We call ourselves civilized. I talk about rebelling. I'm not just talking about rebelling against our government, Federal Reserve System. I'm talking about rebelling against what we've allowed ourselves to become. A society that throws away people because they're old and they can't do what they used to. A society that believes that we should work really hard so that when we're old, it's easier to throw us away. Because if we have money, well, our own money can fund our own old folks' home. I read an email one time about a lady. I don't know if it's true or not, but it sounds true to me. Um, they figured out that she could go to Carnival Cruise Line and give them $50,000 a year, and they just basically let her stay on a ship of her choosing for a full year. And it was less money than being in an old folks' home. Somebody asked her about it. She said, if I'm in an old folks' home, I'm an annoyance. On this ship, I'm treated like a queen. Now, if a cruise ship can treat a person like a queen for $50,000 a year, why can't a place designed to take care of that person in the first place do the same thing? Why? I'll tell you why. Because of all the other people that are there contributing to the system. See, the reason that our elderly don't get treated well is because we separate them from our system. We separate them from the active, productive people. We put them away by themselves. That's how we've destroyed things. That's why Social Security was never going to work. Not just a Ponzi scheme. It's built for a system that doesn't make any human sense. If you think about it, we do the same things with our children, with our modern educational system. We group all our children, we segregate our children by age for six to eight hours a day, for 70 to 80 percent of the year. They're surrounded by nothing but other eight-year-olds or nine-year-olds or ten-year-olds, etc. Don't get the interaction. Don't get the wisdom passed down. I'm not putting down teachers. I believe we need an education system. I think the one we have is really, really broken. I'd like to see an education system where every school has to compete for every student that comes into that school, and I can do it for half the price the government does, but we won't get into that today. If anybody ever wants to hear my solution to the school system, let me know. I'll do it on a show. I'll do it on like a listener feedback show. But we certainly don't need children isolated to just one age group for eight hours a day. That's, that's not productive. It's not human. You won't find any tribal people anywhere that's ever separated their children that way. If you went to a, a, a group, a very let's say a large tribe, let's say a hundred people tribe, so they have a, a reasonable amount of children, let's say 20 children running around, and you said, well, what you should do every day, you told the chief, take all of your kids that are like eight years old and put them here, and all the ones that are like nine years old, and ten years old, and eleven, and he says, we only have like one of those. So he said, okay, we'll do like eight, eight to ten, and then do like eleven to thirteen, and then do like 14 to 7. He wouldn't even understand what the hell you were talking about. Why would you do such a thing? Why would you separate these children? They all learn from each other. The older ones teach the younger ones. What the hell's wrong with you? They make our jobs easier. We work really hard with the little ones until they're big enough to like, you know, go to the bathroom by themselves and, and, and like feed themselves. 
And, and by the time they get there, we're working really hard with the oldest ones, and we're, we're using a hierarchy to educate our children with using each other to do that. Why would we, and they go, oh, well, you've got to address the needs of the eight-year-old. And the, the, the wise chief would look at you and say, doesn't he need to eat, drink, bathe, learn how to take care of himself just like the 14-year-old does? Hasn't the 14-year-old been here longer? Hasn't he spent more time with the elders? Hasn't he learned more? Doesn't he have, in some ways, a better rapport with the 8-year-old than the old elder does? Can't he better put some of that knowledge into that young one? But yet we create a system where we isolate people by age at both extremes. And then we take it into the workplace. We have young companies of young energetic executives. And when a guy walks in that's 50 years old, that knows more than everybody in that building, they see a little bit of gray hair, they look at the, the resume, they see how long it is, and they go, this guy doesn't fit in here. And then we have old companies with staunchy executives, with young people dying to come up the ladder, <laughs> that can bring so much energy and, and be part of that wisdom that's in there, and nope, we don't let them come up. In fact, we'll hire from the outside to get somebody with 20 years of experience before we bring anybody into our ranks. We've done it at all levels of society. It's a blueprint that's been laid out for us. And if you want to be a revolutionary, I know you might be thinking, man, this doesn't sound like a revolution to me. You've got to break away from systems. The only way you break away from systems is first to dissect, understand, and interpret a system for what it is. To know what it is, to know why it works the way that it does. Without that, you have nothing. You have no chance. It's like me dropping you off in the middle of Ohio, but you don't know that it's Ohio, and you don't have a map, and there's no street signs. You have no idea where you are, and I tell you, you got to get to San Francisco. Good freaking luck. Oh, and you don't know where San Francisco is either. You don't even know that it's on the West Coast. We changed the names. I drop you off in Cleveland, Ohio, but all the street signs are gone. You have no map. You don't know where you are, and I call it City A, and I tell you, go to City B, which happens to be San Francisco, but you don't know that. That's why most people can't succeed today in getting out of the system, because that's exactly where they're at. They're standing in City A, trying to get to City B. They don't know which the names of the cities really are. They don't know where they are. They don't know how they got there. They don't know where they're going. I'm trying to inform you as to where you are, how you got to where you are, and let you figure out for yourself where you want to go, which is very frightening. It's what I want to close up with today. There's a reason that people cling to this. They get Stockholm Syndrome to the system. Remember, Stockholm Syndrome is where I take you captive as, a, as a, like a, a kidnapping. And after a certain amount of that time, you actually identify with me as a protector, and setting you free, you actually would be afraid to go free. People do the same thing with the systems. They do it because they don't understand the systems. If, if I was kidnapping you and you knew I was a vile, murdering, you know, evil person that eventually was going to shoot you, and that was real for you, and you understood my nature, you wouldn't get Stockholm Syndrome. But if I kind of treated you good because I wanted you to keep your mouth shut and make my job easier, then because you don't understand what I really am, eventually you become attached to me. That's what happens with the systems. You have to see the system for what it is. You have to see the system for what it creates. But the thing that will make you fear stepping out and doing it is the actual thought that at some point you're going to have to make the decision, I'm free, what do I want? It's the biggest fear in most people's lives. 
What do you want? Answering that question terrifies people. It shouldn't. It's the way people lived for as long as we've been on the planet, damn near. It's only this very little tiny piece at the end that we created civilization in its current form where people stopped having that choice. Ancient man woke up, walked outside of whatever structure he was using to sleep in that night, and said, you know what I think I'm going to do? I'm going to go that way. So it's innate to who we are, but we've been captive for several generations, so we don't recognize it anymore. So when we're actually faced with freedom, remember the magician story? I've given you everything that you want. You're sitting in your backyard looking at your pool, your garden, anything that you would have wanted assorted there for you. You're growing little forest, everything you could possibly want. You can do anything you want today. It's scary to think about that for some people. And some of you are, are belittling that right now. You're saying, not me. I, I, I would know what I want to do. If that's you, you're the person I most need to talk today because you're full of shit. If that was true, you would already be close to being there. Now, if you're close to being there, then I don't even know if you listen to today's entire broadcast other than maybe to figure out how to tell other people about this. Because, well, you know. You know everything that I've already said today. But if you're saying, oh, if you just did that for me, well, it just took that weight off of me, I would be fine. But if you're not on a path to get there yourself, no, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. So my final thought today for you is, what do you want? What do you want? And until you can answer that question, you're not going to be a revolutionary, you're not going to be a rebel, and you're not going to have freedom. That's the first question you have to ask, because it leads to everything else that's in that circle of influence that you have. But once you know what you really want, and if when you answer that question, you go, well, I want a government that stop. It's not what you want. What do you want in your life, in the area directly around you, your living conditions every day? You find the answer to that, and you start to lead yourself down the path to freedom. When you get to freedom on your own, you become a successful guerrilla warrior, and you'll be an example to those around you. That's a great way to start living that better life, because I'll tell you what, while you're on that journey, if anything goes wrong, you're going to be able to deal with it. You won't be one of the people on a rooftop waiting for a helicopter. You won't be a person starving because the grocery store has been closed for a few days. You won't be a person without water because the water system has been shut off for a few days. You won't be the person in line waiting for help. Hopefully, you'll be the person at the front of the line helping people. That's what it's really all about. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, because it all gets spent.